the truth is, in my heart somewhere, I am the little married woman behind a white picket fence with a loving husband and all of that stuff. And this time in my life, it was, if you try to do that, if you try to pull that off and you don't do what you came to do, your life will disintegrate. You absolutely must say what you know to be true. But because I had an aunt and uncle who were medical doctors and my dad was a dentist, um, I grew up with a tremendous love and respect for my profession. But I just, the way I see it is I'm bringing something in that just is missing. Like I like a lot of it, but I'm bringing in what's missing. And Andy Weil years ago, he said to me, you can say almost anything if you're not angry. And I think that I think there's great truth in that. And then I worked with, uh, you know, Bernie Siegel and all the people in the American Holistic Medical Association. We were all, you know, kind of new then. I, I remember one of the, our, our members said he was in Washington, D.C. Sometimes he said, I go over to the window, I open it, I yell the word holistic. I mean, we really were always concerned that our licenses would be taken away. And I have colleagues who've been murdered. So let's not let's be clear. This this is a time of awakening and you and you won't you'll have to do it. You 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 have to do it. Hello, hello. Welcome back Neurohacker community to the Collective Insights podcast. Today Dr. Heather Sanderson is joined by women's health expert, visionary health pioneer, wellness speaker, and New York Times best-selling author of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, Dr. Christiane Northrup. We dive into women's health and how to balance female hormones. For her full bio, the show notes for this episode, and the transcript, go to neurohacker.com slash podcast. We also have a big announcement to share with you about our podcast, so be sure to stay tuned for the big surprise halfway through this episode. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Here's Dr. Sanderson and Dr. Northrup. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I feel very honored to be joined today by Dr. Christiane Northrup. She's the author of Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, that is now in its fifth edition. Dr. Northrop Singh, thank you so much for joining us today. No, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So hormones play a huge role in our thoughts, our actions, our experience of the world. Can you talk about the scientific basis of how hormones, both men and women's hormones, influence our day-to-day lives? Yes, hormones are kind of the messenger between our... Um, our emotions and also our physiological situations. So if we look at, let's just take, what is the um, result of excess stress hormones? Because if you have excess stress hormones produced from the adrenals, that would be epinephrine and cortisol, epinephrine from the uh, cortex and then a, um, cortisol from the internal medulla of the um, adrenals. They, ra- they raise havoc with all the other sex steroids and also with um, insulin and glucagon. And so when we think about hormones, we tend to think about the things that are produced by the gonads, like the ovaries produce progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, and in males the same. It's just that in women, or today we have to say cisgender women, um, then it's mostly estrogen with progesterone coming at ovulation. In men, the testosterone outweighs 
the estrogen, except that, interestingly enough, at midlife, in the like late 40s, men begin to produce more estrogen and women begin to produce more testosterone. So there's kind of a, a cross thing that happens for many couples during perimenopause where the woman will find a new career interest and she's interested now in going out into the world and he's interested in staying home and doing gardening. And that, that's an interesting thing that, that happens and it's related to androgens and testosterone. But the other thing that's fascinating about hormones is that when you are living from the heart, when you have perfect synchronicity of the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system, so that's rest and restore and digest, rest and digest versus fight, flight, or freeze, when those are in harmony, you get beat-to-beat -beat cardiac coherence, which you can see on a cardiac monitor. And when you're there, you actually are producing more of what's called the mother hormone, DHEA, from the adrenals and also from their connection with the ovaries in women. And so when we live in a heart-centered way, when we're in a kind of a, a loving state and not so much in our heads, we actually are producing hormone balance. And that's of great interest to me. And the other thing, there's the thyroid hormone, which is huge in women, you know, like you know you're a clinician, so you know how much, how many women you see with Hashimoto's thyroiditis and, and all the rest of it. And a lot of that comes from the fact that for at least 5,000, maybe 30,000 years, the, the voice of those who are considered more on the feminine spectrum has been squelched. Keep your voice down. Your voice carries. You're shrill. Don't say this. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And then over time, over the generations, this literally shuts down the fifth chakra, which is about um, creativity, will, timing. But it's also, I just learned this yesterday on a, on a wonderful YouTube channel. It's also a stargate, this area. And so when we speak our truth and when we are in touch with this voice, resonance, we are becoming more of who we really are from a soul standpoint. And our thyroid function improves. <laughs> uh, that, that's so profound, right? Because there is this idea that, um, that women are, are not as heard in society, right? We, we don't tend to be the leaders. We don't tend to be the ones making some of the most important decisions. And that inability to speak or even to be heard my own voice is um, very much a West Coast feminine voice. And, it, <laughs> and so it doesn't carry the authority that like a, a British male accent might. Right, right. I was interviewed by this British male who had been the voice of the Globe Theater, Shakespearean theater, um, Stuart Pierce. And it was as though all of Masterpiece Theater was interviewing me with such in profound authority with this gorgeous Shakespearean male British voice that says, anything I say is the truth, and it's backed up by centuries of the right education. <laughs> and they can be speaking bubbles. And it, yes, you still yes. have that experience of, wow, they have this, this authority. Yes. And so... As a, I don't, I don't know if society needs to start respecting and um, and giving maybe more reverence or more 
more value to the female voice? Or is it that the female voice maybe needs to be told that it can have more authority? Do you have a sense of that? I do. But I want to tell you about one study from way back. And this feminist, Dale Spender, wanted to see how often women spoke and how often men spoke. And so what she did in a university faculty lounge, she just set up a tape recorder and she recorded the number of minutes that male faculty spoke versus the number of minutes that female faculty spoke. So a very quantitative study. At the end of the study, the most strident, outspoken faculty woman spoke only 30% of the time, but she was perceived by her colleagues, both male and female, as overbearing and taking up all of the space. So that's how we've been entrained about the female voice. Now, many of us have had to develop a male way of speaking. Uh, so for instance, for me during medical school, it's grand rounds. And so you need to, as you're going around to the bedside, you need to be spouting the studies from the New England Journal of Medicine or the Journal of the American Medical Association. And those were the only, that was the only dialogue that was considered worthy of attention. Now, when I would go back later in the evening to actually talk to the patients, I would find out all kinds of things that were absolutely relevant to their clinical course. Like once I remember a woman looking at the sunset saying, tonight, that's where I'm going. And she was uh, on the cancer ward and they knew she was going to die that night. But that kind of information was considered utterly useless. And so when I would gather information from the patients going around and actually talking with them the way you do, there was no value to that. What was valuable were the figures and the blood count and the blood chemistry and what the EKG showed, as though these all existed in a vacuum separate from the patient's experience. And that's actually, ultimately, why I wrote Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom, because I wasn't seeing anything like this in the medical literature. How a woman's experience determines what's gonna go on in her body. You know, I would have women with breast cancer come in and I would just say, what's going on in your life for the last two years? And she'd tell me. And then she and I would both get a clue as to what needed to be balanced so that she could heal properly. Now, here's what happens with that conversation in a left hemisphere dominant, right-handed um, male environment. That conversation is seen as blaming the victim. So the one place where you have enormous power is your, that's off limits. You can't talk about that. The one place where the person has power to bring in every aspect of themselves, not just the part in the physical body, but the soul and the spirit that are, we're always connected to, that's where your power is. So it doesn't actually matter. I was just reading a book, The Sophia Code, and the woman who wrote it had been sold into sex slavery at the age of three, and she didn't get out until she was a teenager. 
and watched all these ritual abuse and all of that. And that goes on on the planet. Most people are like, no, 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 don't tell, no. No. And the truth is, it's important for us to know for everybody, for women, for men, what happened to you? What happened to that gorgeous two-year-old who laughed all the time? Because, you know, by the time you reach adulthood, people aren't laughing anymore, but they're rolling around like, you know, like little puppies as a kid. As Ashley Montague, the late Ashley Montague, said, most adults are nothing more than disintegrated children. But this, so this, so the, what the woman said about her, her abuse and so on, she said, it was only when I connected with my spirit where I realized Sophia, God, Jesus, whatever name you want to give it, can heal anything. And that's where our power is. But it will never, you'll never get that power if you think that everything's related to a blood test or I need the next screening test or you know how we're trained. I mean, we're trained as though the body is a disaster waiting to happen. So therefore, it requires constant monitoring from these Western tools in order to make sure that everything's going okay. And so, you know, people will say, okay, well, I just, you know, I was just given a clean bill of health. You and I both know that means pretty much nothing. But, I mean, it does make you feel good for a, a month or two. Well, and it th- does, it really doesn't if you don't feel good. And then someone tells you, but all your labs are normal. There's nothing to see here. It's That's so the other part. The in other contradiction. Part yes, yes, exactly. And so, you know, there are many, many things that show up in the electromagnetic field of the body or what you know intuitively that we simply don't have the refined test for yet. So for instance, way back in the day, women with chronic fatigue fibromyalgia that I saw were told that's all in your head. And then big pharma developed a pill for it. Suddenly it's real. And they do that with all kinds of things. But generally when it comes to women, it's a psych med. We now have a way to treat your hot flashes. You look, it's Prozac and yet another guys. They just rebranded it. I mean, this is what I believe when people say, you know, I need to balance my hormones. What is the first thing you must do to balance your hormones? All right. You need to decrease cellular inflammation. And cellular inflammation is the root cause of all chronic degenerative diseases. When insulin levels are high, blood sugar levels are high then you get cellular inflammation. Now, how do we decrease it? I'll give you a quick and easy that anyone can do. 20 minutes standing barefoot on the ground or the beach or hugging a tree. That will ground you to the electromagnetic field of the earth and it decreases cellular inflammation by 20%. That alone. We recently had Clint Ober on the show, and he oh, is really the champion of a lot of this idea around earthing and grounding and that negative ion. Well, it's the balance of ions, right? The, that yeah. we have this positive charge accumulation when we aren't in touch with the earth. Right. So we do that. Also meditation. Herb Benson's work from way back at Harvard, the relaxation response, you know, so Here's the relaxation response. I can teach it to anybody. Okay, you breathe in, you breathe out, and then you have a word that you think. It could be peace, it could be rose. I went all the way to Thailand last year for a 
Buddhist meditation retreat. Okay, here's here's what I went to Thailand for. Ready? Here it is. Okay. <laughs> sit. Breathe in. Breathe out. Sit. In. Out. Sit. That's Buddhist Vipassana meditation. You don't have to go to Thailand. Um, and then we had <laughs> we had walking meditation, you know, where you just lift your foot up and put it down. And then whenever you have a thought that intrudes, you say, thinking, thinking, thinking. When you hear a bird, you just say to yourself, hearing, 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 so that you're constantly coming back to the moment. And over time, you get better and better at sinking into a physiologic state that is associated with balanced hormones and with greater increases in an odorless gas called nitric oxide. Now, nitric oxide is produced by the unicellular layer of a lining of every blood vessel in the body, the endothelium, and that produces nitric oxide in states of uh, meditation, exercise, anything blissful, um, any time when you're producing a lot of oxytocin from a warm embrace, sexuality with the right person or with yourself. And that increases nitric oxide, which is the uber neurotransmitter. So when nitric oxide is high, it balances all the other neurotransmitters like um, prolactin, dopamine, uh, beta endorphin, beta enkephalin, all the things that the late Candace Pert discovered. And uh, she says, these are the chemicals that the brain makes when it thinks. And they also act as hormones. So you see the whole hormone balance. When you say my hormones are out of balance, everyone's been led to believe I need a hormone from the outside. And sometimes like during perimenopause, that can really help. There's no question about it. But oftentimes you can do a tremendous amount by changing to a diet that does not spike your blood, blood sugar and also by meditating and just calming down. And for that, I would recommend a week of no mainstream media, no television news, no news on your cell phone, no mainstream media news. What my daughter does every weekend is she literally takes her Instagram app out of her cell phone. She just takes the app out so that she can't look at it. Both of my daughters will do a week where they're just off social media. They both use it for business, but I think this is a, a tremendous idea because we know that every time you look at social media and you see a like or you see something, it increases dopamine, which is the uh, molecule of reward, the hormone of reward. And that's why social media and your cell phone is so addictive. And this and answer is a, a common question in my clinical mm. practice that women will ask is, well, how do I find time to ground or meditate or eat right or get enough exercise? Well, you can get off social media. We're taking a quick break to share a big announcement for our podcast. Hundreds of thousands of listeners have tuned into Collective Insights over the years for the health and wellness episodes hosted by Dr. Heather Sanderson, and we're so grateful for all of your support on this journey with us. Our next episode will introduce you to a new host of the Collective Insights podcast, Jamie Wheel. 
He is executive director of the Flow Genome Project and author of the Pulitzer-nominated global bestseller, Stealing Fire. He's an expert on peak performance and leadership, specializing in flow states. He'll be hosting episodes that alternate with Dr. Sanderson's, where he'll explore the intersection of neuroanthropology and culture, helping us wake up, grow up, and show up for a world that needs us all. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to be notified when Jamie Wheel's first episode is released. Thanks again for listening. Let's jump back into the show. That's right. And here's what you do. The first thing that you do in the morning sets the tone for everything. So if you don't have little kids, now if you do have little kids, chances are good that they're up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning. So it's not like you're going to get an hour to yourself. But I'm going to just talk to the ones who, but you, you can do it during nap time. But your body has to come first. This vessel comes first. And this has taken me years to undo my medical training because it's always been the work has to come first. The to-do list has to come first. Then I get to take care of my body. And the body's always last. In our culture, the body's always last because of the masculine training. I saw it on uh, the t-shirt of a guy who was a Marine. And it said, pain is weakness leaving the body. Now, that's a very masculine approach. You know, run till you throw up. Um, you know, push through the pain. Uh, I had a good friend who literally remembered running a marathon with the knee hurting, an old football injury. His knee is killing him. But he remembered how to go into the pain from some meditative practices that he had learned. And he got so good at it that he completely wrecked his knee because the body is always giving you signals. Now, what you want to do, and I learned this from John Duyard, who wrote Body, Mind, and Sport. When you get on a treadmill, let's say, you don't ever want to go faster than where you can comfortably breathe through your nose. When you breathe through your nose, you instantly are balancing parasympathetic and sympathetic uh, nervous system. When you have to breathe through your mouth, you're creating stress hormones. And this is why distance athletes um, very often die way younger than they should. They are immunocompromised because they're constantly overstressing the body. But if you breathe in through your nose, out through your nose, and you begin to train like this, over time, you develop a much more effective respiratory, cardiovascular respiratory system. So what John would do is he'd have you walking on the treadmill, breathing through your nose, then gradually either increase the speed or the incline of the treadmill. And then the minute that you found you could no longer breathe comfortably through your nose, he'd go, let's get out of there. Boom. He'd put it back to normal level and slow it way down so that you could uh, regain control. Then with each increment, you would find that you could ask your body for more and the body would respond. Ask it for more and it would respond. So you don't start off in that place, but by the end of a, say, a 20-minute workout, you are able to go much faster at a higher angle, still breathing through your nose. And over time, 
you'll get very good at it. My mother climbed the 100 highest peaks in New England and went to Mount Everest Base Camp at the age of 84, and she did it by learning how to breathe through her nose. And then what happens with that is you don't care who's ahead of you, who's behind you. The only competition is with yourself. If you can comfortably breathe through your nose, you're going at the right pace and you're balancing your hormones. And I think that that is fascinating. You also, most people need more magnesium, as you well know. We are a magnesium deficient culture and most people need more because magnesium is involved in every single conduction of a nerve. And because of farming practices and so on, we're quite low on magnesium. So most people need to supplement with more magnesium. And I've that also, helps tremendously. I've heard you mention vitamin D as well, which is a hormone. Um, yes. And that being a nutrient that a lot of us are deficient in. So magnesium and vitamin D are easy ones to supplement. Can you recommend how to supplement vitamin D? Do you want to go back to those labs and have a target kind of number? Or is there a an amount that you typically recommend in terms of yeah, per day? Yeah, generally the level should be between 40 and 80 nanograms per milliliter. And you should you can get that tested to, to see where you start. And I always tell people, do not be satisfied with your healthcare practitioner saying your number is normal because normal is not optimal and we want optimal. So optimal is 40 to 80. We know that most women who get breast cancer have vitamin D levels that are much lower than that. Same with uh, multiple sclerosis, same with most heart disease. So you want to get it up to the regular level, but you're not going to do that unless you have enough magnesium. They work together. And you also need vitamin K2. And we know that if you have enough vitamin K2, then the calcium, which the vitamin D helps to bring in, doesn't get deposited in your arteries. So K2, vitamin D, magnesium, that's vitamin D3. Probably the best sources are uh, like red sockeye salmon, the really good fish oils, not the rancid stuff. Those are very, very good. And now let me tell you, if you're a, a fair-skinned person, you can get 10,000 international units of vitamin D made under your skin with a 30-minute sun bath. But you've got to work up to that. So those studies are done in lifeguards. And the body will never make more than that. So you can't overdose from the sun. Most of us don't get enough sun. Um, but if you can, I've seen many times where the vitamin D level only goes up when someone's in the sun. I would cover your face. You know, most of us don't want to get the, the aging. Although if you have plenty of antioxidants in your blood, vitamin A and C and E and the B vitamins, then you don't get the free radical damage that leads to wrinkles in the skin. In general, to keep vitamin D levels optimal, you need five to 10,000 international units per day. And um, that's the work of Michael Hollick, uh, Boston University, who's been a pioneer in this area. But remember, it's vitamin D, K2, and magnesium. Now, the way magnesium works, there's really no good test to measure magnesium levels. If you get leg cramps, any kind of cramps, or if you have heart palpitations, chances are very good you're magnesium deficient. My favorite, favorite brand is Dr. Carolyn Dean's Remag Remite. And these are, this is pico levels of um, this mineral. It's so absorbable. And Carolyn invented it because she could not find 
any magnesium that relieved her symptoms. So she literally made sure that she had the right kind. So it's liquid and you, you know, you, you build up gradually because it will also detoxify your system. I'm a big fan also of Epsom salt baths, two cups of Epsom salt, that's magnesium sulfate, in a bath soaking for 20 minutes before going to sleep. That will be absorbed through the skin. There are also magnesium lotions. Again, that's a transdermal approach. And people are really, it, it, it's, they're tr- quite variable on their magnesium tolerance. Some people will get loose stools on a very low dose of magnesium. And others, you know, you can just load them up. Now, if you can't take the Remag and the Remite because you don't want to take the liquid, then magnesium 3 and 8 is really, really good. Some people do well on just plain old magnesium oxide or magnesium chloride. Those are the cheaper ones. But remember the transdermal and the, and the Epsom salt, really helpful. So when we have these minerals or nutrients out of balance, that that basically puts us at risk for some of these hormonal imbalance symptoms, yes. things yes. like PMS. So let's talk about PMS real quick. What's normal? Because some people I think can, some women or even men will say, oh, it's normal that she's acting crazy because she's about to get her period or she just got her period. It's normal that my skin's breaking out. It's normal that I get these horrible cramps. So what is normal? What do we have to live with? And what can we maybe shift what's maybe a nudge which may what's maybe a symptom that's telling us that something's out of balance and an invitation to to correct that balance well here's what i've always said when you have 60 70 80% of the population suffering around a completely natural cycle then something's wrong with the culture not with the woman so uh, one of my patients said it so beautifully she said when I'm running around like an idiot and I'm trying to get everything done in the same day and I get my period, then I usually, I come crashing down. I get cramps and remember cramps are completely different from PMS. So cramps are dysmenorrhea, painful periods. PMS is a hundred different symptoms, uh, could range from irritability, um, easy being clumsy, running into things. Um, feeling very sad, crying at Hallmark commercials, that kind of thing. Now, here's what I would say to all women. In general, that luteal phase from ovulation to the onset of your period is a time when you are more uh, porous. You're more porous to whatever is not working in your life. And if you just say, oh, that's, that's my hormones. I'm fine. That's my hormones. That's a con. That's a con. You know, the, the, I remember one patient saying to me, is it me or is it my hormones? As though the hormones existed in a separate universe. It's always your life, your thoughts, your activity, whether or not you're enough, on enough magnesium, whatever, leads to the hormone imbalance, which often doesn't show up until the second half of the cycle. So the, uh, the menstrual cycle is a wonderful measurement of health. Now, from the time of when your period is uh, your first day of your period till ovulation, let's say after you're bleeding, you're in that follicular phase where you're producing more estrogen. Most women feel their best during this time. And then it's amplified at ovulation when the follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone from the pituitary go down to the ovary cause an ovulation. 
and there's also a testosterone surge then, and you feel maximally, I call that maximally open to cross-pollination from every kind of source. And also the cervical mucus has what's called spinbarkite, a German word that uh, it looks like ferning. It's very beautiful. And I've so often, I'm sure you've seen this too, you see that in a woman and you say, if you want to get pregnant, tonight's the night, that kind of thing. Um, so this is, everything comes together for this wonderful ovulation. And then if the woman does not get pregnant, I like to say she's preparing to give birth to an aspect of herself. Mm-hmm. And so you go into a more, uh, a, you get progesterone then. It raises your temperature by 0.8 degrees. And you, if you ride that wave, then it's calming. You're more inward, that kind of thing. My daughter, uh, Kate Northrup, actually has an entire business called her Origin Collective around using your lunar cycle to optimize your business because it really works. Like, when are you in the fertile void? You know, when is it time to, like, do stuff? When is it time to just let things uh, lie fallow? Because you really can, um, you can map a good business strategy from where you are in your cycle. But what we do in this culture is then we vilify the hormones or we vilify the period. And I mean, for thousands of years, what have we called it? The curse. Or I don't know if you ever heard, you know, this from a man. I don't trust anything that bleeds and doesn't die. I mean, these are the kind of nasty things that I've heard throughout the years. And so the menstrual cycle should be seen as a cycle that we treasure. By the way, menstrual blood is full of T cells. It's full of um, um, stem cells, stem cells. So it's like rejuvenating. I always tell people if they use a cervical cap or anything like that, make sure you put some of the blood in your plants. They will thrive. (laughs) So so what you want to do, the first thing you want to do is be more mindful. Slow down. I have friends who literally will not do any work during their period. They put it in their calendar and they don't book clients and they don't book travel. They literally, I had one uh, during the time of President Obama. She said, if Obama came to visit me and I were having my period, I would not see him. That is how strict she was about this time period. This is my time to rejuvenate. And imagine if we all did this in moon lodges, uh, you know, where the women having their period would be taken care of and food would be brought by other women and you would rest. And there were whole Indian tribes, uh, mostly West Coast, that would use women having their period because the veil between the worlds of the seen and unseen was thinner and their visions would guide the tribe. So think about it. We've taken this cycle that connects us to divinity and our own inner knowing, and we have hijacked it so that women then think it's the curse and it's something to be medicalized. So what do we do? You know, young woman comes in, she's bleeding heavily, periods are irregular, and the doctors say, well, we just put you on birth control pills to regulate your period. What will those do? They will make you tune be in tune with the big pharma, not with the moon. And it's, I've said this often, many others now do as well. It's like putting duct tape over the indicator light on your dashboard because you don't want to see what's going on. That's what birth control pills do. Now, 
Is there a place for them? Yes. Yes, there's a place for everything. There's a place for hysterectomies. There's a place for everything. But it shouldn't be the first thing you do. Yeah. Right. That's so validating. I tell my patients often if there is an imbalance in their hormones or if there is an imbalance in their thyroid, it's not that it's not the thyroid's fault. It's not that the hormones just went out of balance because they wanted to. Something else pushed them. And so our job is to figure out what what was that push? Where did that come from? What's the cause? What's the cause of the inflammation? What's the cause of the hormonal imbalance? How do we get back to the the causal level pieces, which include a lot of what you've already brought up, this not being grounded, this inadequate uh, balance of the of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic, sympathetic drive. Also, the, the media, this pressures of the media, so that stress, not getting enough sleep, not detoxifying well. And then you, I um, was watching a video that you did that, that talked about kind of these seven things that you think are, are most beneficial, and you've already been through a couple of them. The, the list surprised me. And so that's why I want to talk about it. But you talked about grounding, meditation, vitamin D, a break from the media, sleep, sweat, and the divine love petition. So I think so much of the value that you bring is how to get back to that inner knowing. And so, of course, you know, there's balance in, in this too, right? Like the, the labs are helpful. They give us – they're an indicator, yeah. right? And yeah. yet the real healing happens when we're connected to that inner knowing. So – can you talk a little bit more about this divine love petition and how that can maybe help with this inner knowing and, and balance? Yes. I learned this originally from Robert Fritchie, who runs the World Service Institute. So worldserviceinstitute.org. And Bob uh, is by training a chemical engineer and has worked with many rocket scientists and he's worked all over the world. But he, uh, when he had retired, he sat uh, in a chair and he, and he prayed and he said to God, I want to be of service. I've had a good life. And he literally saw, saw, and this is not a guy who has this happen. He saw a pyramid in front of him sort of rotating and he heard the voice study energy medicine. And around that time, um, there was a, a TV show called one step beyond. And so he, found a guy uh, who was doing work with energy um, so and had a hundred patents in crystal technology with IBM. So he went to study with this guy for 25 years and he using crystals. Um, and then Bob learned you didn't need the crystal, that the body is a crystal. Our teeth, our bones, our fascia are all crystalline structures. And that all we have to do is ask. And you've probably heard the adage, ask and it is given. Knock and the door will be opened onto you. That is part of our humanity, part of our humanity. So he, he taught me how to use petitions, which are no different than prayer. What you do is you sit with your feet on the ground. Generally, you take off all jewelry. You put your hands in the upright position, like the receiving position. You close your eyes. And then you say something of this nature, and Bob has the exact petitions on the website, with my spirit and the help of the loving angels of the light, I focus divine love throughout my system. I acknowledge, and then you can put in any symptom, you know, I acknowledge my insomnia, or I acknowledge my headache, or I acknowledge my weariness, 
And I ask that this now be completely healed with divine love according to the creator's will. And then you take a breath in through your nose, hold it, and pulse it out through your nose. All right, that's it. And then what you do, I always set my cell phone timer for two minutes, and I just pay attention to any thoughts, any images that I get, and any, any song, because I get a lot of um, soundtracks with this. And, um, and then I just use it for, for guidance. And what people will find is that when they practice, this intuitive sense gets stronger and stronger because you've paid attention to it. Now, remember, all kids are born with this, and then we're talked out of it in school, mm -hmm. and it should be our first sense, not our sixth sense. Um, Julie Ryan is a medical intuitive with whom I work, and she said, spirit is right there always. You ask a question, it's the first thing you hear in your head. So just ask yes or no questions, and the problem with all of us is we've been so well-trained, especially people like you and me, You've been talked out of your own intuition because you can't prove it. Where's the proof? Where's the studies? Where did you find that? What Where's journal did you look it up? Where are the numbers? But what you do is the first thing that comes into your head is the answer. But you have to practice that. So I, you know, I'm so talked out of that first thing that comes into my head that I tend to use tarot cards and a pendulum because it, you know, it sort of helps me to, um, you know, it's like a control. I know what I hear in my head, and then I'll use a pendulum to control. And a, and a pendulum just um, actually helps you use your innate, your innate intelligence um, because it'll go either a yes or a no. And and the more you do it, the more that instrument reflects your innate intelligence. But we've all been taught to stay away from this stuff because it's not scientific, and you know all the rest of it. Some of the new science around psychedelics. And that connection to the spirit guides or inner knowing mm. um, is showing that there are, you know, these really profound effects on things like anxiety and depression and addiction. Do you have a sense of the role of that type of like plant medicine or psychedelic medicine in the future of, of women's health? I do, actually. Uh, it's interesting that Richard Rockefeller was a friend of mine, and I hadn't seen Richard for a while. And we ran into each other, and he talked with me for an hour about his work with ecstasy, MDMA, with uh, soldiers who had PTSD. And he said, if your name is Rockefeller, it opens doors in the government. So Richard was working with the Department of the Navy, and he was using uh, a shamanic container uh, and sweat lodges to uh, bring these people into a state of calm and then using ecstasy. And he said the results were incredible with people who had PTSD. So I think that there is absolutely a place for plant medicine and it needs to be done by someone skilled in sacred ceremony. Because I'll tell you what I've seen because, you know, we're America, so, you know, you're going to overdo it. So I see these people, you know, who do ayahuasca every weekend, you know, and they're just going around throwing up and, they, and it doesn't help them in their lives at all. Or, you know, however, a friend of mine just did uh, mushrooms in a sacred ceremony and realized that he had a very specific talent 
for creating radio shows with music. And so he began to do that again. It's something that he had done before. And the mushrooms like spoke to him. I know for me, uh, I can't go near that stuff. My brain says, do not go near this stuff. I've never done marijuana. I can't stand alcohol. And I was once given ketamine for a scar revision, for a fibroid tumor scar revision. And I thought, I went to hell, and I thought, I will never, ever get out of here. And ketamine's one of the drugs that they're using as a psychedelic. And I was the last one in the recovery room. I was sicker than anyone you can imagine. And then suddenly, at 8.30 at night, I got this stuff at about noon, 8.30 at night, boom, it cleared my system. And I said, never again. I do not have the kind of system that can tolerate this. However, there is absolutely a place. And I had another thing I did with a shaman, you know, and he blew some stuff up my nose in some ceremony. It was supposed to bring your, your presence in like a Peruvian women walking in the forest. I don't know. Again, I was sick for 24 hours. I threw up and I, it was horrible. No one else in the group though had that happen. So I just know for some of us, the body says, no, sweetheart, not for you. However, I have definitely seen, you know, Mother Ayahuasca help people. In fact, when, when someone is really heavy duty, left brain, right, and they need the proof and they need the science or they say, I'm a scientist, I'm a realist. Those are the people who should probably use the sacred medicine because they need something to knock them out of the gridlock of the intellect, of the ego. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say about that. But Richard's work had a profound influence on me. And then shortly thereafter, he died in a plane crash. Um, and I don't know why, because he was an amazing pilot. He had more hours than most commercial pilots. And he took off from Teterboro and crashed in a nearby neighborhood on a cloudy day. So I don't understand it, but he was doing great work. Mm. Well, yeah. What's really phenomenal about this, right, is that you're, what we're talking about is this tapping into that inner knowing, to that, that guidance, that truth. And there's so many different ways to do it. That yes. if, if meditation hasn't been the right way for you, then there's a couple other options. If, you know, if the pendulum doesn't work for you or applied kinesiology, I think it's another yeah, yeah. one that comes up. Yeah, that's you know, right. There's all these different avenues that you can take to get to the same place. Right. And receive that wisdom. So fertility, you know, this, this, very, again, another sacred transition for a lot of women and men is this transition into parenting. Yes. And fertility becomes a big conversation around that in this day and age where we're sort of overriding, you know, using those oral contraceptive pills from the day that we reach menarche until we yeah. decide to have a baby. And then, uh oh, I can't, but I'm 38 and I had to go get that law degree. So now, now it's time. And and it's and I'm struggling. So so many of my patients are either, you know, struggling at some point in this very sacred transition of either getting pregnant, being pregnant, or or going through the process of giving birth. Also, that new mom um, period. So, what are your insights um, in assisting women through and men as well through families through that transition? First thing I would do is you want to conceive consciously. 
And in my practice, you know, the number of women who would come in and say, you know, it just happened. I don't know how it happened. It's like, you know, stop it. You know how it happened. Learn about your body. So like in the Tibetan tradition, the mother who wanted a baby, the couple, would go out and meditate and pray to bring in a soul that was a high vibration. So you do it on purpose. Then we have whole programs uh, available with uh, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, herbs, to prepare the body for having a baby. Um, you know, you don't go out. I mean, I, women have got to get this together. I've always thought you've got to start using your fertility. You have to bring the same awareness there that you do with your checkbook. Like, come on. Okay, so you need to know when you ovulate. You need to be aware of this. You need to bring in the spirituality of it. Um, prepare the body. Uh, I remember reading a meme from the AMA, American Medical Association, years ago. It said the time to start feeding your baby right is two years before it's born. So you want to have an optimal vitamin D level. You want to make sure you have enough iodine in your body. That's one thing we did not talk about with the hormones. But when you have enough iodine, it changes the way estrogen is used. It protects your breasts. The ovaries and the breasts uh, and the thyroid have active iodine pumps in them. And many, many people have suboptimal iodine levels because chlorine, bromide, and fluoride take this iodine off your cells. They're, they're all halogens. So you need enough iodine. You can get that with kelp. You can get it with Lugol solution. There's all kinds of ways to do it. What's your but favorite way to test it? There aren't great tests for iodine. There really aren't. So this is my favorite because it's so, you know, easy. You get some iodine, tincture of iodine. You put it on your skin, like, you know, maybe inside your elbow. And it should still be there 24 hours later, the patch. And in, I would be willing to bet in 90% of the people who are hearing me, you put that on there and it'll be gone in 20 minutes because your body has absorbed the, the iodine. So that's really my favorite test. And the other thing is this, um, you could, you know, you can try your basal body temperature because your temperature will go up with enough iodine. I, I work with this guy, uh, Ray, who's calls himself the health medium. And when he moved to Maine from Florida, he said, I just had to up Lugol solution so I'd stay warm because it, it really helps with thermoregulation, which is the thyroid. So he takes seven drops of Lugol's on a Dunkin' Donut hole every day. Not, not holistic, but it works. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you've got to go really slowly because if you have, um, if you've been really deficient in iodine and you and you bring it in, it detoxes the chlorine and the fluoride and the bromide. And you'll get a skin reaction often, a rash, and then you'll say, oh, I'm allergic to iodine. No, that's not it. And by the way, you know, when, when someone says they're allergic to shellfish and all that, it's not the iodine. It's a protein in that shellfish, but it's not the iodine. So there's a lot of misunderstanding around that, as you know. Yeah. But I think for women wanting to get pregnant, first of all, it's important to know um, that that thing we have, it's a cultural portal 
age 35. All the assisted reproductive technology people would tell you that after the age of 35, you know, you're going to need all this test, all this assisted reproductive technology to get pregnant. And that in and of itself, that cultural belief will shut down ovulation. Like, oh God, I'm 35 and I haven't found, you know, the right guy or whatever it is. And I've read that fertility falls off dramatically after 35, which is not true. This is where you've got to go with biologic age, not chronologic age, because you and I both know 42-year-olds who are way healthier and biologically younger than a lot of 25-year-olds who smoke and drink and have diabetes and all the rest of it. But you want to see your body as an organic garden, and you want to do regenerative agriculture for a couple of years before you decide to have a baby. Now, that said, having delivered hundreds of babies, it always amazes me how perfect most babies come out. Now, while I have you, though, here, I just have to say something because I find this, this is hard for me to believe. Giving DPT shots, DTAP, and flu shots to pregnant women has now become standard practice. And I do not understand this. There is no science to back this up. Why would you ever give a pregnant woman a shot with those adjuvants of um, tiny amounts of mercury, aluminum? Why would you ever do this to a developing fetal brain? And the same with the hepatitis B shot at birth. It contains 15 times the FDA safe amount of aluminum, and you're injecting this into a newborn. 99% of the newborns in this country now get that hepatitis B vaccine in the first three days of life, and they don't have an immune system yet. This makes no sense. So I'm just going to go on record here as the uh, uh, you know loose cannon that I am to say, don't do that. <laughs> How do you feel about vaccines generally? So should should we be getting vaccines as the children get older? Should, should you know there's all these requirements before they hit kindergarten? Should we catch them up or is there not a place for vaccines, a safe place for vaccines? What I would like people to do at this point before they make any decision is to watch Andrew Wakefield's latest movie called The Act 1986. It is such an eye-opener. Uh, about vaccine science, but here's what happened in 1986. Congress gave the ma- the vaccine manufacturers carte blanche to do whatever they wanted with absolutely no liability. After that, the vaccine schedule tripled, tripled. So we're now looking at 69 to 72 different shots by the time someone is 18 years old, and there are 200 more in the pipeline. So I testified in front of our legislature here in the state of Maine uh, about a vaccine mandate bill, which we didn't need because we have a a 95% voluntary vaccination rate in our state. So we didn't, there was no worry that these dread diseases were coming back. And the vaccine mandate passed because of propaganda. I went to Connecticut to um, testify down there They had the same pressure. So what we're finding is this enormous pressure now to vaccinate and uh, a narrative that's just wrong. And the narrative is this. Your unvaccinated child is a risk to my child. And it's never been proven to be true. 
we now have uh, the most, the sickest kids in the world, in the United States. 54% of them have chronic illness. In some groups, in uh, African-American boys, the autism rate is now approaching one in eight. Who's going to take care of these people? Yes, if it's a little bit of autism, like a little Aspergery, yeah, you can see that as a kind of a genius. But if you've got a 21-year-old in diapers who can't talk and is beating up his mother, that's a different story. And this is all from encephalopathy. Uh, they're now giving seven different shots at the same time. I have a friend who is a pediatric cardiologist, and he said pediatricians are judged on the quality, like the Yelp rating. The more vaccines you get, you give, the higher your rating as a pediatrician. So informed consent needs to be brought back in. So what I would do is one shot at a time and then informed consent. Has any other sibling had a reaction to this? Um, in Maine, things have gotten so out of hand with the new law. Here's an example of how crazy it's gotten. We passed the, the mandate. So that's everyone in college as well. So we have this one boy who has one year left in college and he needs an MMR in order to be, to fulfill the criteria. But he's definitely allergic to eggs and there's albumin and eggs within the MMR vaccine, as well as, by the way, fetal DNA and all of the adjuvants, which are toxic. All you have to do is read the ingredients. Anyway, he was told by the college administrators that he needed the shot, but that he should have it in the emergency room in case he got anaphylactic shock, in case he went into anaphylaxis from the shot. Now, it's gotten out of control. So what I would say to people, educate yourself, watch 1986, the act, it's available for $12, Andy Wakefield is one of my absolute heroes from his whole journey. And just educate yourself and then make a decision. But in my, uh, what I feel is delay as long as possible. Um, and, just, and just learn about it. Also read Dissolving Illusions by Suzanne Humphreys, who did a deep dive into the history of vaccines. Would you speak to the controversy around An Andy Wakefield and how the paper that he wrote was withdrawn and um, and there was this accusation that the data had been manipulated? Yeah, he was uh, completely exonerated um, from any wrongdoing. And the uh, whistleblower at the CDC, I can't remember his name, uh, basically said, indeed, uh, you were correct that when this vaccine is uh, given at an earlier age, you know, like you think two or before age two, there is in fact a greater risk of autism. But if you wait, there's not. And this guy had William Tompin, Tompkins, I think is the guy's name, Thompson. He had all, and he was told by the CDC, um, you cannot reveal this data. And so what he did is he took it home and then gave it to Andy Wakefield later because Andy was a, a good doctor who specialized in gastroenterology. He was just seeing that there seemed to be GI problems in kids who got the MMR. That's all. He was absolutely framed. And when you read the real story, um, you realize that the press just 
vilified him for no good reason. He is one of the most articulate, good physicians that I have ever, ever worked with. Um, so I would say to people, um, open your eyes. Things are not always what they seem. And the mainstream rhetoric around vaccines um, is not supported by the science. But all you want to do is look at the package insert, just read it, and, uh, and make up your own mind. And unfortunately, these vaccine mandates now are... Um, you know, it's, it's like, why would you have to, if these worked and everyone's kid was absolutely protected, everyone would want them. No one would be questioning this. But now when you question it, you're called an anti-vaxxer. Um, Judy Mikovits, who wrote A Plague of Corruption, she said, you can make really safe vaccines. They're, they're a really good idea. You can make them safe. And I think, but they didn't want to make them safe. In 1986, the act talks about how they decided not to make the DTAP safe to save one penny per dose. It's horrifying. Just like the people who made the Ford Pinto, it was going to cost them $10 extra per car to make the gas tank safe. About 900 people burned to death in Pintos. When they got rear-ended, the gas tank would explode. It turned out Ford knew that, but they just made a business decision. Same with the vaccine manufacturers. And this is hard for people because of a thing called cognitive dissonance. And that is, we want to believe that our doctors, that our government, that they're keeping us safe and they're telling us the truth. And you grow up thinking, well, someone's in charge. They must be telling the truth. And then when you find out that maybe that's not, maybe not, it creates what's called cognitive dissonance, which is so uncomfortable that you have to either go, well, I guess I was wrong, or you make the person who's questioning your belief wrong. And I always think of the movie Spotlight about the Catholic Church and how they found out these priests were indeed molesting uh, a lot of little kids. Imagine being a lifelong Catholic who believed in the church, who found great solace in your community within the church, and then you find out that your son, an altar boy, was sexually abused at the age of 12 and is now, you know, depressed and whatever. And you find out that that happened and that you were lied to. That's cognitive dissonance. You don't really know what to do with it. Or this like idea of the default to truth, right? Where we're going to assume yeah. people are telling the truth until we have enough evidence build up that we cannot believe it anymore. That's right. That's right. And I think one of the big pieces of evidence that I always go back to is, well, if conventional medicine is right, then why are there so many freaking sick people? That's it. That's it. Exactly. Do you know the average 65-year-old is on six prescription drugs? And I remember a political campaign prescription drugs for seniors. You know, anyone could get elected if they said prescription drugs for seniors. My mother's 94. She's not on a single prescription drug. So, uh, you know, and my friend Gladys just called me. Gladys just finishing her latest uh, revision of living medicine. And Gladys is, uh, it's going to be published on her 100th birthday. She's not on any prescriptions either. So you're absolutely right. It, it shouldn't, we have a system the, that the goal is just to create lifelong patients. It's not to create health. Mm -hmm. And I think 
people are starting to wake up to that. We have a pretty sick population. Yeah. Well, and almost out of a sense of desperation, right? It's, it's, you go to the doctor enough and you're told you're fine or get on this medication and then now get on this other medication to deal with the side effects of the last one I gave you. And this is the way to do it. And when you spend enough time, enough energy, and then obviously in our country, enough money going back into that system and not getting any help right. and only getting worse, then there's only, you know, that that's that that evidence building up that starts to topple the whole the whole perception that it actually does work. That's right. And then probably people come to you, a naturopath trained in plant medicine, natural remedies and so on. They come to you very often after exhausting mm-hmm. all the possibilities in the conventional world when in fact, in my opinion, we should start with naturopathy, we should start with acupuncture and only use conventional drug and uh, surgery medicine when all else has failed. From the mouth of a surgeon. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Dr. Northrup, I know that you are a very, very busy human. Um, One of my, my questions is how do you do it all? You have all of these books, an amazing website. You have a clinical practice still. How, how no, do you... I don't have a clinical practice. Oh, okay, thank you. I for... don't. So, okay, so you should feel better about that. <laughs> Personally, I do. Thank you. That's a little okay, bit of a relief. Right, right, right. But you do take a lot on. How do you find balance? Um, what's happened is I've surrounded myself with people who support this way of living. And I think that's the key. I live in a beautiful place, very uh, surrounded by nature. I have a staff with whom I've worked. um, The one who runs most everything, Diane, has worked with me for 41 years. Uh, And so, and I have a very clear mission now, which is to teach, you know, having become board certified in everything that can go wrong with the female body, I'm now teaching women how to find everything that can go right and make that their experience. And also right now at this particular time in history, I feel as though I'm midwifing people through this, uh, this time of great change on the planet as we see many of the old systems breaking down. It's like the, the matrix is dissolving and we're moving into a new consciousness. So, so before we go, I want um, people to know how they can find out more about what you have to offer. Find your books, buy them, read them, listen to them. Right. Okay. So if you just go to drnorthrup.com, that's my main website. All the books are on there. I also created a company with the herb Peraria Marifica, which is from Thailand. And the company is amatalife.com. That's also on the website. And it's perfect for perimenopause or women with PMS. Um, It's a phytoestrogen. And it's great for people who don't want to take a pharmaceutical product. And uh, But everything's there. I'm also on Instagram, Dr. Christian Northrup. I'm on Facebook, Dr. Christian Northrup. I'm on Twitter. And, uh, you know, so you'll find me all of those different places. And and I would like to say, you know, I'm um, I'm really not for everyone. I, I realize that it, the, especially the older I get, I think the more controversial I've become. And the reason is only that... Uh, the, the noose is off my neck because I don't have a clinical practice. 
I don't have the Board of Registration in Medicine constantly monitoring what I say and what I do. And for years, I've seen things that needed to change 20 years ahead of when they actually changed. And therefore, I, have, I, I'm, I see things that need to be different. And very often, and this is what I hear about my book when women read it, they say, you know, I always thought that too. I just never heard a doctor say it. So what I'm doing, I think, is, is creating a place where women's wisdom wakes up. Because women know all this stuff, and many men do as well. But I'm just articulating it and giving it some citations. <laughs> 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 I noticed that as I was reading through your book, um, I have the 2020 version, um, but this was first published in the 90s. And yeah, yeah. this information was, I want to say, ahead of its time. And yet it's wisdom that's eternal, right? It, it, right. it doesn't have a time. That's um, right. But it was suppressed for so long. And now here, thank you for being a voice of it. Thank you so much for all of your time. And as always, thank you to our listeners for joining us to hear this important message from Dr. Northrup today. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Before you go, um, I can I tell you a little story about myself? Yeah, I'd, lo I'd love it. Okay. So what you're saying today is was so – when you started talking about the voice, so I've been sort of um, – I guess maybe denying that it's time for me to speak up. Yeah. And I I am the host of this podcast. Um, but it, everything lined up to kind of push me to do that. And um, I'm I guess I'm just wondering, I feel like you've you've done this before me, and I it was very clear to me that like my role in helping contributing the most I can and and serving my highest potential is to be a voice around health and healing. Um, and you've, you've done it. You've spent your life doing that. And my, my voice is this West coast, not very authoritative voice. And yet you've, you found yours. What was your path, um, to finding that and to, to feeling like you could speak up? If you look at my astrologic chart, you see that my north node is in Aries and in the second house is uh, Pluto and Mars conjunct 15 degrees in Leo. It's almost as though I couldn't not. Yeah. It has cost me. It's cost me in my personal relationships and, and all of that stuff. But I had to. It, it's almost like I, the way I see it is I frittered around for lifetime after lifetime and I finally said, okay. All right, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And, um, you know, in the fourth house, home and roots, mm -hmm. I have the sun conjunct Neptune, conjunct Mercury, conjunct uh, the, the south node. The truth is, in my heart somewhere, I am the little married woman behind a white picket fence with a loving husband and all of that stuff. And this time in my life, it was if you try to do that, if you try to pull that off and you don't do what you came to do, mm -hmm. your life will disintegrate. You absolutely must say what you know to be true. But because I had an aunt and uncle who were medical doctors and my dad was a dentist, um, I grew up with a tremendous love and respect for my profession. 
But I just, the way I see it is I'm bringing something in that just is missing. Mm-hmm. Like I like a lot of it, but I'm bringing in what's missing. And Andy Weil, years ago, he said to me, you can say almost anything if you're not angry. Uh-huh. And I think that I think there's great truth in that. Mm-hmm. And then I worked with, uh, you know, Bernie Siegel and all the people in the American Holistic mm-hmm. Medical Association. We were all, you know, kind of new then. I, I remember one of the, our, our members said, he was in Washington, D.C. Sometimes he said, I go over to the window, I open it, I yell the word holistic. <laughs> I mean, we really were always concerned that our mm-hmm. licenses would be taken away. And mm-hmm. I have colleagues who've been murdered. So let's not, let's be clear. This, this is a time of awakening Mm -hmm. and you, and you won't, you'll have to do it. Well, that's how it feels right now. It's like, I have no other choice. Do you notice that things, um, happen with more ease when you're, um, well, you said no, like it's super painful. Sometimes you, well, it's (laughs) painful, but, but, but they still, but the roads open up. Yeah. I mean, I was on Oprah 10 times. Why? How could that happen? I mean, she called me at home when she was having heart palpitations. And then I was on that show with the wisdom of menopause. So my career mm-hmm. stuff has always been, it's just the, the path opens up. Mm-hmm. Okay. The path, and I always use the lessons from my personal life. The more personal it is, the more universal. Mm-hmm. So my book, Goddesses Never Age, was my whole journey, you know, after divorce and being a midlife woman and, you know, all of that stuff. But you'll find, I think increasingly now, we're we're splitting into two worlds. We're splitting into the world of five dimensions, love, holistic medicine, uh, regenerative agriculture, all of that. And then a world where people are scared to death and they want a vaccine and they're going to stay locked in their homes until they die. We really, it's almost like we, we, I tried to work in both worlds for many, many, many years. I loved my colleagues, loved the hospital. Now the way it's going, we're going to, we're creating a new earth. We're creating a new world and you will be a voice in that new world because you can, you're hearing the call. Yeah. You're hearing the call and you'll do it. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for doing what you've you ha- you have been doing. It, it takes courage. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm so grateful to see you know your example. Thank you. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for being with us for this conversation with Dr. Christiane Northrup. If you have questions about this content, please leave them on our site at neurohacker.com/podcast, and we'll work to get those answered on a future episode. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll introduce you to a new host of our podcast, Jamie Wheel. Subscribe to Collective Insights wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you next time.